So welcome back to another episode of the Risk Podcast. Um, today I'm joined by Vishwas Khanna. Um, Vishwas is one of the partners at Avantage Reply. And before joining Avantage Reply, Vishwas was a director at Deloitte UK. He has deep international financial services consulting and risk management experience, uh, a long history of leading teams and complex risk transformations for wholesale investment, retail challenger banks, as well as fintechs in the UK and across EMEA. Alongside this, he's also a non-exec director at a mental health charity based in Edinburgh. Um, but Vishwas, if you don't mind, for the listeners' sake, could you please just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure, and thanks Nader for, for inviting me to this podcast. Very happy to be here. Um, so over the last 15 years, I've uh, worked primarily in financial services, uh, focusing first, the first part of my career was with Morgan Stanley, working in the prime brokerage risk space uh, and uh, had the fortune of uh, seeing the financial crisis firsthand in 2008. Um, moving on from there, moved the consulting world back in 2011 uh, started specializing on the risk uh, and Basel uh, side of things. And then over a period of time, started building experience under the prudential risk regimes, uh, new firm authorization, um, fintech, and much broader uh, programs, including on the way, covered Brexit transformations, risk operating model transformations, and so on. So it's been a, it's been a good, exciting journey. Um, and as you said, uh, one of the things that uh, outside of my work, uh, I am a non-exec uh, with a mental health charity based in Scotland, Miracle. Uh, very, very fortunate to be a part of that team uh, who are working on a number of initiatives. And I think their work is particularly relevant in these times uh, when all of us uh, are grappling with not only physical health, but mental health issues. So very, very fortunate to be there. Lastly, um, I'm also a volunteer with English Heritage. Um, so of the three components of my life, my professional life, um, in, in stacking order of, you know, uh, happiness, English heritage work gives me a lot of happiness as well. So uh, that's, that's about a brief background to me. And as I said, very happy to be here with you and uh, having a chat. That's great. I mean, to be honest with you, it sounds like you have more hours in a day than the rest of us, but I'm sure you just manage it better, which I'm something like very jealous. We're fine. We're fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but touching back on that journey, just looking at 2020, obviously it's mm -hmm. a tough and challenging year for, you know, a lot of people, but in, in terms of, you know, if you can give us some context of 2020 and what happened um, to the risk functions. Sure. Um, it's, it's, of course, a broad um, sweeping question in a way. Uh, 2020 has, uh, has been a seminal year, I would say, in terms of how uh, not only our professional lives, but our social lives are impacted. But going back to the, to the question that you've asked, how did risk functions respond to the, you know, the, the things that happened in 2020? And more broadly, how business responded, I would say, and I'm focusing here on the financial services side of things because that's where I work. I think there were some good parts here in the story and some to be enhanced parts in the story. As the disruption from the pandemic hit uh, organization and risk functions, there were three or four things they actually did quite well. From a continuity of service perspective, that's number one, continuity of service, most financial firms in the UK and broadly in Europe and globally were able to switch to remote working in a fairly seamless manner. If I give you some statistics, um, 
the initial expectation of most firms, the consensus view was that if we have to switch to a fully remote working environment, we have a program of nine to 12 months ahead of us if we want to do that. What the pandemic did was people had to react quickly and the average time in which most financial firms became fully remote or near fully remote was about 11 days. So that tells you from a continuity of service perspective, people were able to switch quickly, risk functions were able to respond quickly and come online in a way that did not disrupt the servicing of customers ultimately in the market uh, significantly. I think that's a big achievement for, for risk functions and for financial services in general. The second big aspect was continuity of uh, lending, continuity of uh, credit in the economy. In the past financial crisis, service continued obviously because this was not a pandemic before, but credit uh, took a hit. Uh, credit facilities were slowing down, uh, transactions were slowing down and so on. But driven by government initiatives, driven by unprecedented levels of liquidity in the system, credit flowed, um, transactions were happening, and real businesses were still being supported. For risk functions, what it meant was they had to process a lot more of transactions, not only from a disbursement side, but also from a funding side as different funding schemes were launched. And to assess risks in that environment, to still be able to make those loans, to still be able to have those counterpart, large counterparty wholesale transactions, I think that was a massive achievement. The third big thing that I would think happened was the pandemic, as is oft said, it compressed years of change into weeks. And most risk functions started adopting technology a lot faster, moving on to more uh, newer programs of implementation, looking at automation, looking at artificial intelligence a lot more closely. And I think all those three things are particular successes of risk offices, risk functions, and broader financial services businesses. On top of it, I'll add one more thing. <clears throat> one of the things that financial services firms have done well and risk functions have done well is how they manage the transition for their people and their teams. Teams suddenly became dislocated, became fragmented, um, but lines, newer lines of communication were opened. More intensive engagement was created. Um, and I can say this based on my interaction with CROs over the last year, uh, and how they've instituted change in their own organization, uh, people engagement has become one of the most priority areas for them. And in the short term, and we'll come to the long-term aspects, in the short term, I think that's also a success for risk functions. So that's the good side of the story for what has happened well. With so what, what went wrong then? Where did they fail? So from, from that perspective, the, the most important thing that comes to my mind is... <clears throat> risk functions had a singular failure in being able to, in being unable to predict a, a circumstance like this and being prepared for it. Now, it's not to blame somebody for saying that uh, you didn't predict the launch of the Apple iPhone in 1999. We're talking about very core concepts of risk and uncertainty out here. This, the, the pandemic, while we've talked about it, it's, it's imminent at some point in our lives, it was still a very uncertain event that you can't quantify for properly. But when we ran a survey last year, uh, less than one in 15 CROs suggested that pandemic risk was even on their radar at any point in time. So there was, a, I would say, an industry-wide, a society-wide failure to accept that risks and uncertainties that might be too far off in your data points might still exist and might still impact us. And I think that is a critical failure 
Not to say that uh, risk functions only were responsible for it. <clears throat> the second one I think is from a, from a more longer term perspective, the success of risk functions was not determined by them adhering to a script that they had and they followed that script in the pandemic and everything was fine. It was driven by the fact they had no script that was ready for this environment. They wrote that script quickly and moved on. What that means is that previous ways of working are not relevant anymore. And now firms will have to redesign how their operating models would actually work now. And that is a massive learning from this pandemic because firms now need to invest in the whole, I would say, reorganization of how they work, uh, how they process information, how they escalate issues, how they govern uh, an organization and so on. And that uh, I think uh, in the short term, they might've done well, but in the long term, there are systemic issues that need to be addressed in that and that sort of things. And finally, what didn't happen very well, I would say, and there's a chance of things going wrong further on, the increase in credit delivery over a period of time, of course, it was supplemented by government funding. Uh, it, it has created the potential for massive insolvency risks on the credit side in the books. And I don't think that firms have taken proactive steps to understand that risk profile that coming, that's coming to hit us in 2021, 2022. It's, a, it's an issue that's been discussed at length, but most firms don't have a consensus around how to approach that problem. How do we adjust our credit models, for example, to look at how insolvencies might impact us in the next year? How do we make decisions um, about lending, for example, uh, in this environment while being cognizant of our broader societal responsibilities or our obligation to customers? I think that's an answer that was not fully resolved in the early stages of the pandemic and there's still not an answer. So I think there's more work to be done there. Um, so that's my view on uh, uh, some of these issues. Uh, this is not a comprehensive view, obviously, but I think it gives you a sense of where things are going right and where they're not working. Yeah. I mean, I think it was fairly comprehensive and it's not only valid, valid viewpoints there, but it is an interesting take on the fact that there wasn't a handbook to tell everyone how to deal with the situation. So having to kind of react you know, upon impulse and put people first um, seems to have worked well. And then that seems to be the best way to go. So... I'm going to give you an example of how different some approaches were, actually. Um, one of the banks, fairly large wholesale investment banks, um, even before the government mandated lockdown, three to four weeks before that, they had their plan of saying, we need to react to the situation. Uh, we need to create team ABC, build a rotational structure as to who comes in when. And then within two weeks, that was thrown and said, nobody comes in anywhere. Everybody works from home, except a very minimal number of critical staff, for example, people who need access to the trading floor and the broadband doesn't work and so on, um, they need to be here. But apart from that, everybody stays home, everybody works from there. Opposite side, I'm aware of one firm where uh, people organize the floors in a way that we have our temporary residents now in the office, we have tents, and the 50 people that need to be here will remain in the office and they won't go home. So clearly, that was not part of their operating manual in 2019. No. It was developed off the cuff, but it worked clearly. So there's a, there's a variety there of how firms responded to that uh, situation. Uh, none of it was driven, as I said, by a script. Mm. The script was created and some scripts were very successful actually, but whether they'll remain successful in the long term is the question that needs to be answered. And there are 
there are discussions around that, obviously. Well, we're going to touch upon that later when we look at you know people dimensions and collaboration in that environment and you know what was done right and what wasn't. But mm. before we do so, just looking at other kind of recent conversations that you know I've personally been having across the industry, I want to touch upon climate change. It, it remains one of the most talked about topics. So why is this so important at the moment? I go back to the um, initial uh, observation I made about uh, risk functions not being completely geared to uh, uh, to forecast uncertainty in, in material ways. Climate change by itself is not a, a, a new phenomenon, obviously. Um, what, what makes it unique is it's a, what you call a meta risk, a risk that impacts every other risk type in a meta sector, which is the financial services industry. Financial services industry provides credit, provides services, provides transaction capabilities to nearly every single person in the UK and, and, and outside. So it impacts the performance and the running of every single other sector, whether it's telecom or airlines or whatever. Flow of credit is what keeps things going. Within that climate change, because it impacts every sector and it has a nuance or linkage to every other risk. So for example, if you have uh, lending exposures to beach houses in Brighton, which is where I know somebody stares, uh, those beach houses are impacted by rising sea levels and therefore you might have an increase in credit risk on your book that those facilities might not be paid because people out there are unable to service their loans over a longer period of time and the value of the collateral is going down. So credit risk is impacted, but equally market risk is impacted because uh, of future uh, expectations about what climate change risks might do to individual markets or segments. So interest rate movements or equity price movements are driven by that. So why climate change becomes quite important is because it works on multiple levels. It's not a singular risk and it doesn't impact one sector of the economy, but the sector it most impacts in turn impacts the rest of the economy. So it's, 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 a, it's a layer upon layer. Within, within that context, I think what's, what's become apparent over the years is that sometimes regulators do need to take front and center action to force firms to think in a certain way. Firms in the oil and gas industry have always been thinking about climate change because that's bread and butter for them. That's what they're directly impacted by. Financial firms have come later to the party, but they are very clear, clearly getting onto the, getting onto the uh, understanding that we need to manage climate change risk in all its forms, whether it is the physical risk of stranded assets flooding in a city or flooding of collateral property versus the transition risk of what happens when policy changes and uh, new caps on carbon emissions come in. How are some of our counterparties impacted? How are some of our uh, relationships impacted which are dependent on fossil fuels do we have massive exposures there and so on so climate change therefore acquires an urgency and finally of course uh, at the end of the day we are still living on a finite planet with a finite set of resources and there is near unanimous consensus despite deniers that climate change is real and it is impacting us on a day-to-day -day basis so there is no way that financial services firms can ignore what happens on um, on their watch uh, when it comes to climate change. Oh, so, touched, sorry, no, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, you've touched on it briefly there, but there is an impact on, on financial risk um, when it comes to climate change, both credit and market risk, as you mentioned. So looking specifically at that, what can financial services firms do going forward? 
most financial firms are are doing a lot at the moment now uh, when it comes to climate change. And there are a number of things firms are expected to do, um, right from changing their governance arrangements or instituting the right governance arrangements that take care of climate change risk uh, at the top level, to analyzing the impact of climate change on the model, their viability, their strategy, the markets they enter into, the products they work with, the counterparties they deal with, the sectors they get exposed to, and how does that whole flow through look like? So there's a massive amount of scrutiny that firms are applying to their strategy over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years, because climate change is not a short-term risk, it's a long-term risk. And some of the um, impacts only become apparent in the much longer time horizons, for example. So governance is one aspect of what firms are changing or looking at, including um, identifying senior managers who are responsible for looking at climate change within their uh, within their firms. Um, stress testing, uh, uh, scenario analysis of the portfolios to say, what will be the potential impact of a two degree rise in temperatures across the globe for us? What will be the impact on us if we are financing trade finance deals, which work between China and the UK, and China has a certain amount of fossil fuel dependence, for example. So governance, uh, business model assessments, stress testing, and finally disclosures. There's a huge amount of emphasis by regulators to say, we need to know more about what firms are doing um, in relation to climate change and mitigating the risks arising from it. So whether it is banks who need to make financial, uh, who are required now to make uh, additional disclosures, to asset managers, to insurers, uh, what are you doing in that space? How exposed are you? Uh, that needs to be uh, known. And it's not only a financial matter at that point in time, it broadly then combines with the with the considerations around the ESG risks, environmental, societal, and governmental considerations, because it's not just a matter of uh, financial risks out here. It, it impacts societies and livelihoods in a much more fundamental way. So a number of large firms are quite ahead of the curve at the moment, but probably not enough. They've, of course, you, you might have read about recent pronouncements about investors asking a particular uh, globally systemically important bank to make more yes. disclosures on their, their exposures to climate change risk. So this is a journey that's started. COVID slowed down to a certain extent the emphasis on climate change because there was immediate uh, focus um, on, 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 on managing the pandemic. But the story is here to say, uh, regulators are keen, <clears throat> including um, the US with a change in the administration, the focus is shifting back to climate change. Uh, even with the departure of Mark Carney here, uh, the, the Bank of England remains focused on climate change with Andrew Bailey. So we do expect uh, firms to be doing more and to be expected to do more in the future. It's interesting what you said as well about the kind of the ripple effect of it all. It's not just going to impact financial risk for you know looking at ESG and further wider environmental impacts for that reason it needs to be taken seriously um, so no no very useful viewpoint so just to kind of round up before we look at people with dimension and uh, collaboration in the workplace so looking at the year ahead and the learning from the 2020 experience shall we call it what what are the key priorities for CROs in 2021 so we, we've been working on our uh, top 10 priorities for CROs for 2021. We've engaged with the industry. We've talked to, to a number of CROs, discussed these issues. Um, and, 
and we've we've come up with a list of 10. Of course, they can be longer, but in terms of priority, we think there are about 10 key issues that CROs, chief risk officers need to grapple with this year. Within those 10, we break them down by the strategic high-level issues and the more technical risk-specific issues. I won't talk about all the 10, but at the strategic level, I think one of the most important ones, which I alluded to earlier was, how do we need to redesign our operating models within our organizations? How risk, finance, treasury, front office businesses, third lines come together uh, horizontally, which is left to right from first to third lines of defense and vertically from bottom to the top layers. How, how do we need to re-engineer that? Because in this environment uh, with physical dislocation, with us being in different locations all the time and con conversing through remote environments, communication paradigms need to change. We can't rely on the same old facts which are produced on a monthly basis and going through channels and review processes. We need to make it a lot more agile. We need to rely a lot more on technology. So operating models is a big piece that risk functions need to invest in and financial services firms broadly need to invest in. The second one is around automation and artificial intelligence. This pandemic has made a significant, face, uh, a significant case for acceleration of uh, initiatives around that. A number of firms have relaunched their journeys uh, on the cloud infrastructure implementation side. Um, a number of them are looking at uh, more automation in the processes, including from credit origination to disbursement and so on. Um, and that journey is only going to continue. We need to uh, you know, manage that story a lot better. The third area I would like to call out, which we've not discussed earlier, but it's really important at the moment. When, when your work environment becomes more fragmented, the attack surface from a cyber vulnerability perspective rises. Earlier, you were 500 people in one bank environment working together. Now you were 500 individuals working in different places. So your, your, your vulnerability to cyber crime uh, rises significantly. That as a theme is, is, is borne out by the facts for the last year as well. The number of cybercrime attempts from a financial services perspective skyrocketed last year, both in the UK, EU and other jurisdictions. So from a technical focus area perspective, cybercrime, uh, KYC, AML, how to manage those processes in this environment will become quite critical. Some of the challenger banks, fintechs in, in, in the UK and globally uh, have been doing a lot of fascinating work on KYC, AML processes, making sure of you know, entirely remote onboarding can happen. And that has to be spread across. That has to uh, 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 go uh, you know, in nearly all your processes. Uh, so, so KYC, AML, financial crime will be key areas of focus for this year. And lastly, one more area I'll call out is, as I mentioned earlier, is around uh, managing your credit risk, your collections processes, your provisioning, and your credit risk modeling. Those will be critical because many firms are looking at significant challenges when it comes to their, uh, their credit risk uh, assessments and their capital computations. So looking at how to manage that process, how to mitigate uh, against uh, significant spikes in capital requirements, I think that will be a key area. Um, of course, uh, if, if, if you want to have a more detailed discussion on all the 10 areas, of course, we can, we can, we can do that on a separate occasion. But I just wanted to highlight some of the big ones uh, that are uh, immediate. No, absolutely. No, definitely. I mean, we, we've had these you know, conversations in the past, but definitely worth having another catch up and looking at that again. I think in terms of the credit risk and then the modeling piece, we kind of saw that at the back end of last year. Um, 
you know, from August time, they had to kind of take action and a lot of the banks wanted to get everything in place, you know, in readiness for 2021. So, you know, it's interesting to see that's going to continue. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for your view on that. And, you know, finally, just to touch on this part, it's, it's, it's vital, it's important, and it's more paramount now than, than ever. Um, people dimension, collaboration, in inclusiveness, they're, they're all fundamental factors to any successful team. You know, you're a leader, you've, you've built and developed teams over your career. So in, in your view, how do you think this is best achieved? I think what, what the pandemic has taught us more than anything else when it comes to people management is disruptions like this have a significantly disproportionate impact across various segments of our, our teams, our, our, our workforce, if I may say so. Um, and statistics bear that out. Uh, during the pandemic in the UK, uh, women have been disproportionately impacted, whether it's through furlough schemes or layoffs <clears throat> or additional working hours or taking up more responsibilities of the home environment, they've been disproportionately impacted. The more junior staff, more uh, the start out uh, generation, they have been more adversely impacted than the middle management or the senior management. So within our workforce, our teams, uh, different segments are disproportionately impacted. And to a certain extent, it provides us with opportunity to see whether we need to do more to, to bring about a certain balance in how our teams are run, how people are, are communicated with, how people are engaged with. And, and I think the, the two key areas which will, which will form the currency of how, 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 how teams are managed are going to be empathy and trust. For many organizations, people didn't want to do remote work before the pandemic because they didn't trust their people enough to do the right thing, to work in a remote environment effectively. Secondly, people didn't have the right level of empathy for the personal lives of individuals and how, how, how they manage their personal lives with the professional obligations on an ongoing basis. The pandemic has brought that into sharp relief, obviously. So one of the critical things for us to do as teams would be to make sure that we have the right level of trust, loyalty, engagement, transparency uh, as we go on. And there's a right level of empathy that is being shown to people who are managing complex lives in a complex environment with all the attendant mental health issues that you know, we've, we've probably just referred to. What this pandemic again makes me realize is that as individuals, we had outsourced so many aspects of our lives to so many different individuals. And suddenly those outsourcing links are snapped. Uh, you can't go and meet friends for just to just have a, a good time. You don't have all the things that you're used to, uh, whether it's access to uh, services or goods, all those aspects of lives are taken away. So you do a lot more of your life. You perform a lot more of your life yourself. And unless, leaders and every individual team member show empathy for the other team members, what they're going through, what their experience is, it will be very difficult for people to come together, have a shared vision, a shared culture. And I know these words can be, can be, can be hackneyed or they can be seen to be, you know, uh, uh, you, know you can't describe them, they're quite vague actually. But culture matters in these situations. Do we as individuals feel part of a broader organization? still in this environment, when we've not been to the offices in a year, are we still comfortable that we are brand X, brand Y? Do we have a way of working which is different from others? What will attract people to our firm versus other firms in this environment? 
because branding changes in this environment, obviously. Um, if you are going to be plugged into a laptop for the next one year, does it matter where you work? Questions to be asked. And that's where I think um, whether leaders and each team member um, expects a certain level of trust and displays that level of trust and whether they show the right level of empathy for individuals who are disproportionately impacted, that will be, I think, critical to building a successful teams uh, for the future. I, I like that a lot, actually. And, and it has come up in conversation. And the two points that really stood out there for me were the transparency and the empathy part of it. So to, to allow people to be transparent because they can't necessarily kind of, you know, like you said, go out or just detach themselves you know, to be able to be transparent with their colleagues, with the higher ups, it, from the top down, there has to be that level of empathy. Um, and it's more than just the word or a worthless platitude, it's actually actionable empathy. So no, that's definitely interesting. Absolutely. In fact, the point that you just raised, this environment has, I would say, created opposing forces sometimes. In a way, if you think about an organization, let's say a new person has joined a bank and they've just come in. In a way, it is. it has increased access of the most, you know, the youngest people in an organization to the more senior people. You can now peer into the home office of the CEO on a call, which you never did before, obviously. You never knew how, how the senior management in a way lived. Hmm. Now you have the access and that's a great thing. You, you can communicate across, you know, boundaries and across uh, uh, levels on the, on the flip side of it, the fact that you can't talk to uh, different members of a team in a physical space, you have to have an appointment, you have to have a call to be able to do that. You can't just walk by and see somebody and have a chat. That increases the distance that you have with, with, your, with your organization. So in a way, it, it has brought people closer together, obviously. We are now talking to people we would not talk to otherwise except once in a year, but equally it's created that distance from people um, and while it works in the short term, in the longer term, how, what does that mean for, for, for uh, uh, appraisals? What does it mean for performance? What does it mean for loyalty? Uh, what does it mean for gratitude between individuals? To be seen. I think there's a long story out there which needs to be solved for. No, but, absolutely. Yeah. And I think taking those small steps and those small actions you just mentioned, uh, it, it, I mean, it can only help, right? So it will allow that transition as we carry on through this phase to hopefully be less strenuous on people and they can in turn be more productive, happier and, you know, look after their mental health. So it's, it's a really interesting viewpoint and thank you for that and breaking it down into the different elements. I'm sure that'll be useful. So really, really useful. Um, I mean, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's been great talking to you. We've covered so many points, but I'm pretty sure we can talk for another couple of hours. So we might have to do another follow up, but Again, thank you for coming on, sharing your insights, and I'm sure our shared networks will value this. And if anyone has any follow-up questions, you know, around the risk parameters or even the people dimension piece, um, Vishwas has kindly agreed to follow up um, with another episode or just answer your questions directly. So please drop us a message and um, just follow our page. So thank you all for listening um, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. See you then.